Let me invite you to take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to be covering a lot of ground. You're going to need six-page references to get there today. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you'll find the, the chapters we're going to cover on page 228 all the way through page 234. So go ahead and flip over there and get comfortable. Uh, how are you with waiting? Waiting's hard, isn't it? What do you think it is that makes waiting so hard? Sometimes I think waiting is hard because you know what you want, but you can't make it happen when you want it to. It can be hard to wait not knowing when or even if you're going to get the thing you want, especially, especially if you've got this creeping sense that whether you get it or not really comes down to you and whether you do what you need to do at the right time in the right way. If it comes down ultimately to something you just haven't tried yet, then waiting is really hard. Sometimes it's that you know what's coming, but you can't or don't want to wait for it to get here. Our family takes an annual fall break trip for a couple days of hiking around Black Mountain outside Asheville. That trip is eight days away from right now. I can tell you because I've been counting those days because the trip is awesome. If you ask me how I'm feeling about the trip, you know what I'll tell you? Oh, man, I can't wait. But you know what? I've got to. It's not time yet. It's eight more days, kids. You know what I'm talking about, right? Did you guys know it's 92 days until Christmas? Anybody already know that? Now, you did. 92 days is a long time to wait, isn't it? Don't you sometimes wish that you had like a fast forward button for your life? And you could just skip over to Christmas and it'd be tomorrow morning? I often want that. I mean, one of my favorite things about streaming services is that now you don't usually have to wait through commercials. Sometimes you don't even have to wait a week for the next episode. And you know, my favorite feature of all in the new streaming services is that skip recap and skip intro button. You know what I'm talking about? I get kind of stressed out about it, actually, because I don't want to miss that button because then I'm going to be stuck listening to these, this music and these credits rolling. Like, skip it, skip it, grab the remote, skip it. Don't you wish you could have one of those buttons that you could hit anytime you wanted in your life? For some of us, maybe for most of us, few things are more frustrating than waiting when we don't want to. But for the life of a Christian, few things are more important. Let me say it again. For the life of a Christian, for our lives as Christians, if we're followers of Jesus, few things are more important than our waiting. And for one thing, we're still waiting on most of what God's word has promised to us. Like if this is it, it's not enough, is it? We're still stuck living in bodies that are decaying. We're still stuck feeling regret over sins that the Bible says God has forgiven if we're trusting in Christ. We're still stuck slipping into sin even when we don't want to because we're not yet fully remade in the image of Jesus. We're still stuck waiting on a ton of promises to be fulfilled that haven't yet. So if you want to be a Christian, you're signing up for waiting, like it or not. But, but, but really, another reason, the key reason I want you to notice today about why few things are more important for Christian living than waiting is that our having to wait for right now is not an accident, 
but part of God's plan for making us who he wants us to be. It's a strategy that he's using. It's not like God has just gotten too busy, that he's now distracted from what he said to do. My kids will tell you that happens to me all the time. Like we're planning to go out and throw the football in the yard, but you know, I got one more thing to do before I can do that. I got one more email to send. And like five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by. And what's happened? Dad's just taking his eyes off the ball. And I've, I've focused on what was right in front of me. Knocking out those emails when I could be out there throwing passes. That happens to me. And sometimes maybe we could think that's what God is doing. Why hasn't he come back? He said he was coming. He even said soon. Where is he? You get distracted up there? No, that's not what it is. Waiting is part of God's strategy for how he makes us who he wants us to be as his people. So the question is not how do we fast forward through all this waiting, but how to live well in the middle of it. See, waiting on the Lord is not a new position for God's people to be in. It's one of these amazing themes that the Bible weaves in like a thread all the way through from almost the very beginning to all the way to the very end. This thread of God's people waiting for him is everywhere. It was a key season in Israel's life, waiting in the wilderness between being set free from Egypt and when they received the promised land. It was a key theme in David's life, as we'll see here this morning. A key part of his rise to the throne that God had promised him was, was years in exile waiting for it. And it's a key theme in the life of every Christian in ways I want to show you this morning. The word that the Bible uses to describe this theme is wilderness. The wilderness. That's where Israel was wandering after Egypt. That's where Jesus was tempted and that's where David spends the time between when God promises him the throne and when God gives it to him. It's a word that's repeated all through chapters 21 to 27 and especially in chapters 24 to 26. So with that in mind, let me give you one big caveat before I read the first section that we want to look at together this morning. The big caveat is this. Our sermon this morning is going to cover a lot more ground than we'll be able to, 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 to actually read. Sometimes during this sermon, because we're trying to cover all of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel, which go together in one sermon series through the fall, we're going to be focusing on themes rather than specific verses. And I think in a healthy church life, a balanced diet of God's, from God's word means sermons that sometimes do that kind of work rather than the verse-by-verse -verse sermons that cover three verses in 30 minutes or what have you. What I want to do, though, is really zero in on chapters 24 to 26 and cover those, th those three chapters in great detail because those chapters are the crux of the entire section. Chapters 21 to 23 and chapter 27 are like brackets that set the stage for the drama that plays out in, verses, in chapters 24 to 26. So what we're going to do today is begin by, by summarizing 21 to 23 and 27. I want to set that stage for you here in a moment, but then drilling down on chapters 24 to 26. So that's where we're headed. There are going to be two points for this sermon this morning. One will be David's life in the wilderness, and then the second will be our lives in the wilderness. First, we're going to look at David's life in the wilderness and what we need to notice about these stories. And then we'll learn from that for our lives in the wilderness as we wait for God's promises to all be fulfilled. First thing I want to do is read for you the couple of verses that begin chapter 24. 
So if you found the general area we're going to be in this morning, now flip over to chapter 24. And now please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read the first two verses of this chapter. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. This is God's word. You can be seated. Big point number one this morning is David's life in the wilderness. And to understand the point of it, to understand the main driving focus of these chapters, you need to see the tension that David lived in and the test that David faced. The tension David lived in and the test David faced. The tension David lived in comes from the scene-setting work of chapters 21 to 23 and chapters 27. Here I'm not going to ask you to turn to those. I'm not going to read from these sections. You can check my work later if you'd like to. I'm going to summarize what's going on in these scene-setting sections. They set up the tension that makes the wilderness the wilderness. Because in the Bible, the wilderness is not just a kind of terrain. It's not just a set of of climate conditions. It's not just about lack of water or reliable food sources, though in this story and and in Israel's story, all those things are real and and part of the experience. What makes the wilderness a wilderness, the way the Bible uses this, is the experience of wandering in a gap between what God has promised and what you see around you. What makes the wilderness a wilderness is a gap between what God has promised and what you see. When you look around you. For Israel that meant a promise of land. That would be theirs. A land that would be flowing with milk and honey. In other words just full of good things to eat. And and no stress about where the next meal is coming from. That's what they'd been promised. But they wandered for 40 years. Hungry and exposed. In other people's rugged land. With nothing to eat or drink. That was Israel's wilderness. For David. It's that he's been promised the throne. He's already been anointed by God as king through his prophet Samuel. He will be the rightful king over Israel. That's where he's headed. And for a time, it looked really close. Because he was loved by everybody in Israel. And he was winning every battle he was sent out to fight. And he was married into the king's household and had a bed in the king's own house. He looked so close to the throne. But our stories open with David reduced to nothing. A man with nowhere to lay his head. And the context verses, or excuse me, of chapters 21 to 23 is a string of stories that sometimes seem isolated and, and short, but are tied together by how vulnerable and exposed David is. That's what comes out in all of them. How vulnerable and exposed he is. And by how big is this gap between what he's been promised, the throne of his people Israel, and what he's experiencing now. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Chapter 21 opens with David scrounging for supplies at a holy site in Nob. He's just been warned to run by Jonathan, who knew that Saul was going to kill him. So David's out all by himself running in the hinterlands. And he comes to this holy site in Nob. And he's begging from a priest named Ahimelech because when he ran for his life, 
basically only escaped with his life. He had nothing. Think about this. David is a man who, I don't know, weeks ago, months ago, had a reserved spot at the king's table, eating the finest food in all the land. Now here he is knocking on the door of the tabernacle, asking for day-old bread that was going to be thrown out otherwise. That's what he has to eat. And in the same scene, we see David begging for weapons. This is a guy who just weeks ago, months ago, had been given by his friend Jonathan the finest weapons in the land. Jonathan's own weapons. He says, here, they're yours. You'll put them to better use. Now David is empty-handed. He's got to beg for Goliath's old sword that had been kept in storage at this spot in Nob. That's what the priest gives to him to fight with. Just a few chapters ago, David was living in the king's own house as his son-in-law. Got to be the finest digs in Israel. In chapter 22, that shows him hiding out in a cave. A cave called the Cave of Adullam. It's called the Cave of Adullam because it's a cave and not a real house. It's called the Cave of Adullam because it belongs to Adullam, not to David. It's not his. And it's not even a real house. This is a guy who was sleeping in the king's own bedrooms. Now look how far he's fallen. David had been the head of the armies of all of Israel. He went out and he came in before the people, we were told, in what we looked at last week. But now, and listen to how chapter 22, verse 4, describes the band that he's leading. It says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men head of all the armies of Israel, captain of a ragtag band of 400 misfits. And surely the most telling feature of all these features that set the stage for what we'll see in 24 to 26 is that first in chapter 21 and then again in chapter 27, for fear of his life, David runs to the Philistine city of Gath, to hide out from Saul. Gath. Gath was Goliath's hometown. The same Goliath that had mocked God's people, provoked David into a battle. The same Goliath that David had used to make his own name as he tried to make the name of God great. David's name rings out when he lops off his head and the giant falls to the ground. That giant Goliath came from Gath, where David is now hiding out because it's safer for him there than among his own people. Let me just read you a section of chapter 21. Verses 10 to 15 show us just how far David has fallen. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David? The king of the land? They know who this is. Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. 
Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Look how far he's fallen. The man who held his head high before Gath's greatest champion, essentially groveling like a fool before Gath's king. He has done nothing wrong to deserve this suffering. God has said nothing to update his promise to David. He hasn't changed his orders. David is still expecting one day to sit on the throne of his people. But for now, for now he's not welcome in the land, much less at the table or on the throne. That is the tension David lives in. That is the wilderness right there. A gap between what God has promised and what you see. And in this tension, we need to see the test that David faced. The test that David faced. This setting is in place to frame up the question that the wilderness poses to everyone who is there. Will you wait for the Lord? Will you wait for the Lord? In the gap between what God has promised and where you're living now. Will you look to him? Will you wait for him to work in his time? The central section of our passage this morning poses David with that one test three separate times. We're just going to walk through each one. There's a test in chapter 24, a test in 25, and a final test in chapter 26. Same test every time, different circumstances. Let me show you these tests one by one before we then come back and see what we can learn about our lives in the wilderness from seeing David choose faith in his turn. Scene number one is in chapter 24. We already read the first two verses. Let me pick up where we left off in verse 3 of chapter 24. Saul's hunting him here. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. It's talking about Saul. And Saul went in to relieve himself, which means exactly what it sounds like. Because the Bible is earthy. And the Bible's hilarious. (laughs) It's okay to laugh. While Saul is in there, he has no idea, unbeknownst to him. Verse 3, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Not the cave he should have chosen for what he had to do. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as shall seem good to you. Then David arose, and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Striking, isn't it? That David, choosing not to kill Saul, would still feel guilty for the fact that he cut off a corner of his robe. Why? What was wrong with that? He could have easily cut off his head. Seems like the robe is small potatoes compared to what could have been. And the key is to know that this robe had symbolism that David understood. This robe pictured Saul's royal status. Cutting it off was like a symbolic way of saying, your throne is going to be cut off. 
And he had done this with his own hand. In other words, he knows he was tempted in the words that his followers used to tempt him to do as it shall seem good to you. To do what's right in his own eyes when it seemed right to him. But for David, the Lord put Saul on that throne. The Lord would have to take him off that throne. David is not going to grab it with his own hands. Pick up back with me in the same chapter, verse 6, where we left off. David says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Over and over, he's almost stumbling over himself to emphasize the fact that this guy is the Lord's anointed. He's his man. And he's the, he's, he belongs on that throne the Lord says otherwise. Verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now look at David's appeal to Saul. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand and in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and didn't kill you, you know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. You see the difference? David is fine with vengeance. He wants justice. He sees that Saul has no business treating him the way he is. But David will not raise his hand. He appeals to Saul one last time. As the proverb of the ancients says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I've repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you've dealt with me in that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. What's this story about? Can you see it? 
David has been promised the throne. David is hiding in a cave. And when David has a chance to do what seems right in his own eyes, when David faces that test, he doesn't grab the throne for himself. He waits for the Lord to do what he promised he would do. Scene one, David passes the test. Now to scene two, chapter 25, same test, different circumstances. Now we have a different set of characters. Now we definitely have a different set of circumstances. Now the question is raised again. Will David see this is really the same test? Will he respond in the same way he just has when it isn't Saul? But a cranky, stingy sheep farmer named Nabal? Chapter 25 takes our focus for a second off of Saul. Just a little minute, just a little quick brief aside. But it, it isn't just a random run-in between David and this, and this random farmer. The story itself fits the theme perfectly. It's sandwiched between two stories about Saul and David that make the same basic point. David may need a lot of help. David may not be perfect. But David is waiting on the Lord to give what he promised and he is not going to take what he thinks he should have by his own hand. Pick up with me back in chapter 25. Verse 1 tells us that now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. David apparently was, was there for these events. But then... David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. You see, it's placing him in the wilderness over and over again. You need to know that's where he is. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, verse 2. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. We're being told about this guy before he even knows his name. The most important thing to know about him is he's rich. He's got a lot of sheep. He cares about that. He cares about what he owns. And verse 3 introduces us to his name. The name of the man was Nabal, which means fool. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. Go up to, so David sent his ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we didn't harm them, so they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men Find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now look at Nabal's response. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat and I, that I've killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Nabal is basically saying, kids, get off my lawn. Who do you think you are? It's my bread. It's my water. It's my meat for my shearers. My, my, my. Get away. Back off. And David's like, oh, it's on. Strap on your swords. Why do you think David responds so quickly and so strongly to what Nabal had said? It's because David already in chapter 25 is acting like a king. He's coming to Nabal like a king would come for tribute. He's demanding a tax. In another way, what he's doing is he's posing a test of allegiance to Nabal. Are you with Saul or are you with me? And Saul leaves nothing to the, or Nabal rather, leaves nothing to the imagination in his response to David. He understands that's what's going on right here. And he's not having it. Who do you think you are, son of Jesse? servant who's gotten a little too far away from his master. David is fighting mad because David knows his throne and his claim to it has just been challenged head on. He is not a model right here. Thanks be to God for Abigail. Now enter the true hero in the story of chapter 25. Abigail, one of the great characters in the Old Testament. Abigail, we've already been told, is the wife of Nabal. What we'll be told later is that she goes on to become David's wife after Nabal uh, dies. Here, we're just told she's discerning and she's beautiful. And now in the middle of this story, we see her work her magic on David. One of the young men, verse 14 says, told Nabal's wife what was going on. David sent these messengers to greet our master and he railed at them. You know what comes next. So, verse 18 Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and a hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. That is a big time snack to take to David to try to ease his pain. She said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I'll come after you. But she didn't tell Nabal. Verse 20. As she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried. She got down from the donkey, fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal, which means fool, is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, 
Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord will be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. As the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over all Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause." Or from my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. It's a mouthful, but the point, I hope, is really clear in what she's saying. Abigail is taking the promise God has already made that she knows about. She's saying, this is where we're headed, David. Don't work salvation for yourself now. Now is not the time to act like your king. God will put you on the throne in time. Wait for him. She's telling him, trust God's promise, not your power. And immediately on hearing her, David sees that she's right. And he sees her as having saved him. Blessed be the Lord, verse 32 says, the God of Israel who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Do you see it? Same test. How will you get to the throne, David? Whose hand will put you there, David? Once again, though he needed a lot of help, David waits for the Lord. And the final scene, verse, or, uh, chapter 26, same exact test, same question, same outcome. Only by this point, David is a lot quicker to see the truth. Once again, at the very beginning of this section in chapter 26, we're told that David is in the wilderness. The wilderness this time of Ziph, verse 2. And once again, we have Saul on the hunt trying to run him down. It's almost the exact same story that we saw in chapter 24. But that's no accident. The fact that it's really similar is pointing us to what's different about this time around. Look at verse 3 of chapter 26. Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Now look at what David does next, verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, 
God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please, let me pin him here to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. One way or another, he'll get what he deserves. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Basically the same story. Basically the same outcome. David waits. He doesn't take what he wants for himself. But did you notice the difference? Somebody compared this as two results on the test at school. Chapter 24, give them a B minus. Cut off the robe. There was a symbolic taking of the throne in that, in, in that act. But here in chapter 26, a flying A. He is, he is A++ on this test. Now David knows exactly what the stakes are. He takes not a piece of his robe, but simply disarms him. He takes his spear. He takes his water jug. He takes away what Saul would need to keep chasing after him, trying to kill him when he shouldn't be trying to kill him. But all other than that, he leaves his hands off of this man because he trusts the Lord now. David faced the same question in the wilderness three different times. In the gap between what God promised him and where he is now, David, will you wait for the Lord? When Israel faced that test, they grumbled. When Israel faced that test, they made a golden calf that they worshipped. When David faced this same test, David, the man after God's own heart, chose to wait. He didn't do what seems good to him. That's the simple point made over and over and over in this story from 1 Samuel. So what do we do with it? What's it here for? How does it encourage us in the meantime? That's what I want to use the last few minutes to encourage you with. Because we absolutely live our lives now in a wilderness much like the one David lived in. The New Testament talks about this a lot, actually. It goes back to Israel's wilderness times as a way of helping us understand our own lives. We feel, in other words, that same tension. We've got amazing promises that we haven't seen fulfilled yet. We've been promised that we'll one day carry the image of Jesus. We will look like he does. But now we see sin all over the place in our hearts if we're paying attention. We've been promised this untouchable security, inheritance that nothing can touch, that will never fade. It won't ever rust. It won't be stolen. Where what matters most to us, we will have and know we have it without any threat. That's what we've been promised. But for now, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. We've been promised eternal life. You know, bodies that are, that are new, transformed, beyond the reach of death and decay. But for now, we're trapped in time. We're withering away like grass in the field, the Bible tells us. So how do we live in this wilderness? It's really simple, guys. It's really, really simple. And I want to boil it down to three final encouragements to you. 
Three simple things to remember as you wait. The first is to remember what Jesus has done and be grateful. When you face your testing in the wilderness, it's not a test like you face at school to see whether or not you can pass. Jesus faced this test in his wilderness, as Colin read for us earlier, and he passed it once and for all. So that when you're tested in the wilderness, you are being refined and not condemned. Think of Jesus before the evil one out there in that wilderness. Did you see where he tried to get at him? You remember this? Aren't you hungry, Jesus? Like David at the priests of Nob. Don't you need something to eat? Why don't you command these stones to be bread? You can eat. Eat your fill. Jesus says no. Won't live on bread alone. When he takes Jesus up to that high mountain, he looks around at all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, all of it could be yours. Worship me, you'll be king. And Jesus knows, like David before him, I've been promised exactly that. All of these kingdoms will be mine. It is my throne. Well, surely if God wants me to have it, this, this approach right here may as well be as good as any other. Maybe this is what God wanted me to, 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 to get to the throne. Maybe, maybe I worship him. And go ahead and click that skip intro button and be right there into the episode itself. Jesus says, no, you worship the Lord and serve him only. Jesus passed the test that David faced. He passed it perfectly, but he passed it for you if you trust in him. So that now what you get from him is not someone who's already passed, looking back at you in your test thinking, let's see how they do. Can they measure up to my standard? What you have now is what Hebrews 4 tells you you have. A high priest who gets it. One who is able to sympathize because he's been there, tempted as we are, but without sin. Why? Hebrews 4 says, so that we can come near with confidence to the throne of grace to get help, to get mercy in time of need. Remember what Jesus has done already and be grateful. Then remember what God is doing now and be watchful. Remember that this wilderness that he's put you in is here for your good not to harm you, but to help you. David had to learn this. And some of the most amazing psalms that we have are psalms that David wrote while he was in the wilderness, making sense of what God had brought him to. We read from Psalm 34 in our call to worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you know where that psalm comes from? The title says it was written from the time when David was making a fool of himself before the king of Gath. What did David take out of that experience? The free day old bread from Nob and the, 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 the performance in front of the king of Gath. It is good to have God for your God. I may not have much to eat, but he's with me and he is good. Or Psalm 142. This is a psalm that says it was written when David was in the cave. Probably one of these caves where he met with Saul. Psalm 142 says, look to the right. And see, there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. David's being honest. He doesn't like living in the cave. He'd rather be back in the palace. He wants a bed. He wants a fluffy pillow. He he doesn't like it out here. He's exposed. There's no one paying attention to me, he says. I have no refuge. Very next verse, Psalm 142. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. How do you think David learned that God is his refuge? 
He had to lose all other refuge in the meantime. He had to be pulled out of the palace or else he'd be staring at those walls, at those parapets, at those archers on every tower. And he'd be saying, boy, that's a refuge. Now that's what I call a refuge. I'm so glad I have a refuge. He had to be plucked out of that and thrown into a cave, night after night, a new cave, so that he could say, I have no refuge. Oh, but you are always with me. You are my refuge. Guys, you only learn that in the wilderness. You have to remember that that this is part of God's plan. And then to start looking for what he's teaching you about himself right where you are. If you're feeling that wilderness tension, ask yourself today, what is he showing me about himself that I couldn't learn if I had what I wanted now instead of later? And then remember what God will do and be patient. Remember what he will do and be patient. Every one of these stories mentions that David may as well be king. Even Saul puts it in his own mouth. He says, you're going to be king. I can see it. It's coming. David is relentlessly focused on the time when God makes good on all his promises to him. Another psalm from this period is Psalm 56. The title puts it at the time when the Philistines seize David in Gath. I wonder if you know this one. Listen to what David writes. When I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. You've kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? In God whose word I praise. What word? The word of promise. The word that that God would be for him, would put him on the throne. That's a good word. A trustworthy, praiseworthy word. In the midst of 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 the wilderness, David is praising that word. He's holding on to what God has said he's going to do. And Paul echoes this psalm in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Well, All of your life is lived under these promises. If God is for you, who can be against you? If God justifies, who can condemn? If God is with you, what can separate you from his love? Friends, the challenge of waiting looks different at different times in our lives, but it is always going to be there. When you're young, sometimes the challenge of waiting is is to resist the urge to make a mark in this world, to claim a life on your terms that everyone notices and celebrates as quickly as you possibly can and hold on to it for as long as you can. That will be a a temptation you will face. And you you will be tempted not to focus on the promise that, that one day God tells you, well done, good and faithful servant. That God's approval that's promised to you is the approval that matters. That his view of you is the view of you that defines who you are. It'll be hard for you to wait when you're young. And you know what? When you get older, like I am, you know, it stays hard to wait. You get a little less burdened by what mark you're making on the world and a little more burdened by all the marks you see on your own face when you look at it in the mirror. Those of you who are aging know what I'm talking about. And as we wait... 
we will be tempted to fight off death by one after another remedy for the aging process and the decay that we feel. We'll be looking for something we can control. I'm not saying we shouldn't eat healthy. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to your physical. I'm not saying you shouldn't get your hair done. I'm saying guard your heart when you look in that mirror. Maybe tape up that verse from our new old song this morning. When you see what you can't stop from happening. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's side. In other words, keep me from working salvation with my own hand. It's a losing game. It is not going to work. Land me safe on Canaan's side. Where are you struggling to wait? Where are you restless or fearful? If you can pinpoint where that is, then here's your homework for today. Ask of your own heart, do I need to remember what Jesus has done? Do I need to remember what God is doing? Do I need to remember what God will do? And see if the Lord doesn't encourage you while you wait. Let me pray now that he will. Father, we thank you for your good word to us, for giving us so many wonderful reminders that you're worth waiting for. Help us now to hold on until you come again. Keep us in faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.